This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Robin Hemley explores questions of national identity, patriotism, and cosmopolitanism in his latest collection of travel essays, Borderline Citizen, Dispatches from the Outskirts of Nationhood. Robin stops by to talk about his new book, as well as the different approaches to creative nonfiction, writing about the self and travel writing, and putting together an essay collection. So now, here is Robin Hemley. Well, Robin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jeremy. I'm really happy you are interested in talking to me. So uh, you first got on to my radar because of your book, A Field Guide to uh, A Field Guide for Immersion Writing, and I hope we can talk about that and your new collection of essays, Borderline Citizen, in a little bit. But you've written a lot. You've You've written many books and articles for many prestigious publications, and you've won prestigious awards like the Pushcart and the Guggenheim. And you're also a professor, a writing teacher, and an editor for an online publication. How do you balance all the time <laughs> uh, to, to work as a profe- professor and to produce so much work? Well, yeah, my life is a little crazy in that way. Um, I just sort of I'm pretty good at triage, and I'm also good at compartmentalizing. Um, I'm not the most organized person in the world, as my friends and family will attest, but I do get things done. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm sort of a little bit like a mad scientist in a lab, you know, just going from one boiling over vial to another. <laughs> and, uh, and, I like to work that way, actually, it, because I, I'm, I think I, that's just the way I create and the way I, I work is to, uh, it's not so much a balance, it's more of a kind of, it's a, it's a kind of energy, uh, an energetic, almost sort of gymnastic kind of style of uh, living my life. And of course, I do stuff with a lot of stuff with my family, with my daughters and so on and go mushroom hunting in the woods with my wife and things like that. And, you know, by the end of the day, I'm pretty tired, but, but that's how I like to live my life. But you get stuff done. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think I could get, in fact, I know I can't get stuff done when I have all the time in the world to do it. (laughs) Um, That's the worst for me. I actually need structure. I need things that are sort of, that need immediate attention. And I, I'm, I'm, know that I can't do things unless I'm interested in them. And so I'll work very intensely on a project for a while. And then I'll let myself do something else that's equally interesting or even more interesting for a bit and then come back to it. So your, your bread and butter is creative nonfiction. If, if I'm not mistaken, you, you're part of a writing program now yeah. in Brooklyn. Well, so yeah, I'm, it's not, it's, actually a really unusual position. One of the things I've done throughout my career is uh, to create new programs. I love to sort of build things. 
outside of myself. That's another way in which I'm, I guess I'm creative. Um, I, I, when I was, um, well, about 10 years ago, or actually more than that, I returned to the University of Iowa where I got my graduate degree uh, in fiction, actually. Um, but I, I returned to head a uh, program, the nonfiction writing program at the University of Iowa, which I headed for nine years and um, really sort of, it, it had been an existing program, but it was, uh, it had suffered a little from uh, just neglect. And uh, I brought it uh, sort of back to life, I guess, and uh, really enjoyed that. And then after nine years, I felt like I'd pretty much done everything I could with the program. So I got an opportunity to go to Singapore for Yale. Uh, Yale was doing a, uh, a project, the first liberal arts school in, in Singapore, a collaboration with the National University of Singapore. And they asked me to start up a writing program, which I did. And then I did that for about five and a half years. And I really needed to get back to the U.S. for family reasons, and so I came back, um, and I worked at the College of the Holy Cross in um, Worcester, Massachusetts for a year and a half. And then I had this position sort of pop up at Long Island University, an opportunity to direct an entire new school of communication, the Polk School of Communication which is going to have, you know, media arts and journalism and creative writing and, um, you know, documentary film, all that, uh, under one school. And, uh, and so I was given the opportunity to build that and I, it was right up my alley. So I really couldn't say no, but it's challenging to do it during it during a pandemic. Right. <laughs> Forgive me if I'm not using the correct terminology, but how would you, I guess, we can just take it back. How would you define creative nonfiction and how important is kind of narrative to creative nonfiction? So, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a good question. And it's a difficult question. So creative nonfiction is a term that was created actually in the late 1960s by uh, a professor at Columbia. Uh, and then it was taken up later by Lee Gutkind, who started a magazine called Creative Nonfiction. Um, it's supposed to be an umbrella term that sort of shows that nonfiction is as much an art form um, as, you know, fiction. poetry, fiction, so on, drama. And I think in that respect, it's done a good service. But but like most of these labels, it's it, it doesn't fit the breadth of nonfiction. And and it's imperfect. Um, so, you know, I tend to think of nonfiction in terms of its components rather than try to say, you know, for instance, the essay, the personal essay, something called the lyric essay, um, travel writing, uh, biography, memoir, autobiography. I don't think the term creative nonfiction suits all of them. So I, so I like to be specific in that way. And so I write all of them. Um, and I think that, you know, the, these terms uh, are easier to use, uh, than creative nonfiction. Narrative is important to certain types of, let's say, creative nonfiction. So obviously narrative journalism, long form 
uh, journalism, sometimes memoir, but not always. You know, telling a good story is something that's, you know, that's a real art form that belongs in nonfiction as well as fiction, uh, but only certain types of nonfiction. There are other kinds of nonfiction that are more, let's say, associative, that um, sort of flip from one, that don't rely on narrative so much, but rely on more the on memories, the way memory works, which is very associatively. And some mm. nonfiction that even looks and, and seems more like poetry sometimes. Um, and that's where the, the so-called lyric essay comes in. Um, and so, you know, narrative is very important to certain writers. Uh, and there's some wonderful long form narrative uh, journalism and memoir and so on that's you know very popular but then there's there are other writers who really for whatever reason that they're not as interested in telling a story as such but sort of unfolding a way of thinking or uh, thinking about ideas or um uh tracking a life through um a metaphor for instance you know say taking um uh let's say a subject of carnivals and writing an essay on carnivals and using, for instance, uh, personal memories of carnivals. Because when I say carnival, people usually have some association with that. It's often a memory or just an image comes to mind. And so there's some essayists who, who write in that form where they, they, where the, the image, the central image, the central image becomes the, the impetus for the essay. And then they might do use research too. And they talk about what were the earliest carnivals. Um, and that becomes the, the substitute for telling a story. I see. Yeah. Hey. It's just a, interesting. Yeah. What comes to mind when you're referring to this associative um, writing is Rebecca Solnit's work. And I don't know if yes. she's yeah. a yeah. In yeah, she's incredible a writer. Yeah. Yeah, that's that kind of writing um, is writing I'm attracted to very much, both as a writer and a reader. Um, I'm I'm really attracted. The thing is, I have very uh, eclectic tastes, both as a writer and a reader. I mean, I I write in different forms, and and each essay, let's say, teaches me how to. Um, to, it demands a different kind of form sometimes. And then I love writers like Rebecca Solnit, as you said, and, uh, and, and, and others who are, um, who are writing more associatively. Mm -hmm. in, in the a field guide for immersion writing, you speak a lot about kind of defending uh, the idea of writing about the self, including the self and not just travel writing, but also journalism and, and memoir. Could you uh, help us understand this idea of writing about the self in, in memoir, journalism and, and travel writing? Why did you feel that you needed to defend that? Well, I think that there's a kind of, um, in some circles, a kind of knee-jerk reaction to writing about the self that it's always self-aggrandizing or just self-obsessed or self-indulgent. 
And that's not necessarily the case. Um, it can actually be a fairly generous act, uh, right? Because you are, if you're doing it well, you're serving as a conduit for the um, thousands of other people who might have similar concerns. And so I find that um, writing about the self, there are ways to do it that are not self-obsessed. You know, there's this um, New York Times book review uh, I read years ago by the writer Gay Talese. And in his review, he uh, remarked on the person he was reviewing as uh, wearing himself lightly. And I just loved that term, hmm. that that you can be a kind of the eyes and ears for the reader and wear yourself lightly and not make it all about you, but to understand that there is a, that you are the filter. And that's important, very important, I think, for the travel writer, especially the travel writer in the 21st century, because we all come to our travels with cultural baggage um, and maybe fixed ideas about a culture or first impressions or stereotypes. And some of those are unconscious. And the process of writing about them and writing about yourself creates a kind of awareness, self-awareness that I think is important for travel writers, uh, especially now, because in the past, and I'm talking about maybe just 40 years ago or, or less, um, probably less. In the past, the assumption was that you were, if you were someone in England, uh, a white male writing about, or America, writing, uh, going to, let's say, the Philippines, there, there was a sense that you were writing for an audience that, was, that looked like you, that maybe shared some of the same opinions as you and so on. But now in this world of the internet and such, and also hopefully a world that is a little more aware of um, the, the dichotomy between being an insider and outsider, now the world is much more complex and you are the world of travel writing too. And you have to assume that people who are of that culture or of that society are your audience as well. And so you have to, you have to go to the table, I think, uh, with this notion that you are a certain, you, you come from this certain culture. You have some notions that you might not even be aware of, but that you're coming sort of, um, to the other country or the other place or whatever as, a guest and, and not an insider and hopefully well-informed, but you still have to, I think, um, give a sense that you, that it's you there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's my, the, my attitude. I want to be there in a way that is as open-minded and, um, you know, questioning, self-questioning as possible, not to the point where it's annoying, you know, I don't want it to, I don't want to every, every turn, you know, say, well, did I do this right? Or am I, you know, that's not what I mean. I'm, I'm just, I think in my book, you know, in borderline citizen, for instance, 
I, I think that I try to, um, you, I, I, I don't only write about myself, but I'm writing about other people and myself interacting with other people. And I'm largely there to get their sense of, of their own place, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I have to do it through myself as a filter. Right. You, you, um, you wrote about this in the the book, as you just mentioned, and I I wrote down a a quote that uh, you wrote somewhere in the book. You said the traveler in the 21st century might do well to recognize his subjectivity. I was thinking about this and we could say the same about the travel writer, not just the, the traveler. I think this also relates to, you know, having, um, diversity of, of voices in the travel writing genre, because we all come from different perspectives and backgrounds. And, you know, it's interesting to learn how other people engage and interact uh, with the world as much as ourselves. Right. But I was also thinking, you know, this kind of honest, self-reflective, I guess, approach to traveling and travel writing might also help us avoid some of the common, um, ethical pitfalls, involved in in travel writing you know the colonial gaze or you know the environmental damage that like parachute journalism is doing if if we're kind of honest that we are the center of this book as much as uh you know we're exploring new new territories then it might lessen the the impact of of othering yeah i think so i mean and and you know i i tend not to write I mean, in some cases, I write about places where I haven't been very long. For instance, I wrote about the Falkland Islands or uh, Las Malvinas to the Argentines. Um, but, um, and I was there for a week. But to make up for that, I also immerse myself in the history. And I immerse myself in really research so that I'm able to to really sort of understand the place both on the ground but in its historical context. And I think that that's really important too for the travel writer is to understand the, the history of the place that they're going to. Because of the when they first visit, uh, I mean, I try when I can to go to a place more than once and I also mull over um, my... Um, essays sometimes for a year or even two because I take copious notes so I can always you know go back to them but I I try to really um, spend as much time considering what I've seen and why I've seen it as you know just sort of going in and experiencing it so the experience lasts for much longer sometimes than the actual experience you know it's it is really reflective. Mm-hmm. And some of your, uh, well, the essays that I've read, particularly the ones in, in this new book, um, are are interesting because they don't tell us how we should approach a, um, a country or a problem. Your book raises more questions than, than gives answers. Can you talk to us uh, about the collection in general? Like, why did you put this collection of essays together? Well, I was always interested in um, notions of nationalism and patriotism because I think from a very young age, when I was 17, I was an exchange student in Japan 
And that, that was at a time when uh, a lot of Americans were not exchange students. And, the, and I was in Osaka, Japan, and I it was my first real encounter with a culture that was not, that did not just sort of make me automatically comfortable that because I was so used to it. But then I really became fascinated with, with, I mean, I have had all these friends in, in Japan and I thought, Oh, you know, I'm reading books at the same time I'm in Japan as a 17 year old that take place during world war two. And I was thinking, you know, if I were here, at that time, I'd be in prison, perhaps killed. Uh, we were enemies, and now we're like best friends. <laughs> and, and I just thought, this doesn't make much sense to me. I don't understand um, why I should care more about the people of one country than another. So I often say I was born without the patriot gene. That doesn't mean I... I and disloyal or dislike my own country. I, you know, I've traveled extensively in the U.S. to 49 out of 50 states. And, you know, I like something about every single one of them. But the idea that American lives or Americans are in some way better or that I should care more about them just never made much sense to me. But I was interested in other people's views on this. So I was interested in the notion of exclaves and enclaves and people who lived in territories that were separated from their mother countries, um, but still, you know, part of it. And there, it turns out there are all these territories around the world that are completely separated from, they're not contiguous to the country that they're, um, uh, that they belong to. And some have a kind of hyper- loyalty or hyper patriotism like the Falkland Islands towards Britain. Um, and some are almost ambivalent towards uh, their uh, home country. So I became really interested in this and I visited a bunch of enclaves around the world um, that, you know, were really odd bits of territory, such as this, these, these twin towns on the border of Belgium and Holland uh, called Barley Nassau and Barley Hertog, where the whole town is a patchwork of international territory. There are something like 30 different bits of, uh, of one country embedded in the town so that every time you're walking, um, you know, you take a, a, an evening stroll through this town and you're crossing international borders maybe 20 times. Um, and the borders are etched into the sidewalk. But they're almost like tourist attractions. In fact, they are. There's one one door, for instance, that with uh, the border, the international border, going right through the middle of this door to this person's <laughs> apartment, and uh, and they actually have two sets of doorbells and two nameplates, or uh, one uh, Belgian and one Dutch, and it's just sort of absurd thing. So I, it just got me to think about borders and sort of some of the absurdities that attend um, patriotism and nationalism. And when I started this book about seven years ago, started the first essays in it, we weren't really talking so much about nationalism in the same way uh, that we are now. Um, it was starting to get bad, but it wasn't as virulent as it is now.
around the world. And so, uh, but I was really concerned about, about it. And I thought, how better to investigate it than to investigate some of the absurdities uh, around citizenship and borders. Mm-hmm. And some of our, our current issues uh, in the United States and also in other countries around the world uh, deal with, uh, I guess, the ways in which we remember the past and, I guess, negotiate the past. What are your observations on this? And I guess, as a secondary question, like how has traveling um, and also reporting on the world, how has that helped you better understand, I guess, our own unique set of, of issues? Yeah. Um, so there is this uh, French philosopher um, who uh, named uh, Ernest Renan, who in the 1880s delivered uh, a lecture to the Sorbonne, in, uh, in which he asked, what is a nation? And that seems like a very simple question, but to this day, it's actually a, a, a fairly complex question. By the time he asked it, the map of the world looked completely different um, or very different. Italy had only been a nation for you know, 16, 17 years. Uh, Australia wasn't a nation yet. Germany had only been a nation for a little while. So nations as such are relatively new Inventions. I mean, we, we've had countries, of course, but the modern nation is relatively new. India was a, a country of um, 600 princely states at the time. So it's, it's still a relevant question, what is a nation? So anyway, the thing with, um, with Ernest Renan was he actually said that remembering the past or how we construct the past is very much a part of nationhood, and that nations, even though they're relatively new, tend to appeal to a common past in order to create the sense of nationhood uh, in its citizens. Um, And so that's why you have, say, Donald Trump standing in front of Mount Rushmore to create this sense of, uh, of the past, of this sort of common united states in order to you know uh, amplify this this notion of nationhood for good or ill uh that's why you had mussolini uh when he was in power in italy remake uh rome entirely so that it was calling back to the roman glory days to so he could make the fascist state uh, one with Imperial Rome. So he took the area around the Colosseum, which was covered, it was, you know, uh, obscured by all these old Renaissance buildings. He, he tore down the Renaissance buildings so that, so that the Colosseum would be completely, um, uh, you know, visible to everyone. And he did a lot, uh, of, of that throughout Italy. And so what's really fascinating though, about this appeal to the past Renan said was that as important as victories are for a nation, defeats are actually even more important in some ways. That to remember sort of collective defeats, that's why you have things like remember the Alamo. Uh, they bind uh, a nation together as much as anything. But the the fascinating thing to me is that nations 
are not old, but they they always try to make themselves seem old so that people feel a part of this long legacy, this continuum. And that's certainly true with a lot of what has happened in the last three years in America, you know, even with the slogan, make America great again. You know, what does that mean? Um, and what, what kind of past is that hearkening back to? What, whose greatness? What, what, what are we, what do we define in, in uh, how do people view that collectively and singly? So that to me is really, um, you know, is, is fascinating. Is a fascinating thing about nations is that this constant attempt by the leaders of the nation to create a kind of collective national narrative that makes people loyal to this idea. And that's why people will fight and die for this idea, because they see themselves as part of this glorious tradition that includes defeats as well as victories. Right. You mentioned in the introduction to your new book, uh, Benedict Anderson's uh, Imagined Communities, right? It's a book that many of many of us have have read in in graduate school. It talks about kind of national identity is is a constructed imaginary thing that's always under construction for for a great portion of the time. Yeah, he uh, wrote his book uh, almost exactly a hundred years after Ernest Renan delivered his lecture. You know, uh, and they're both incredibly influential in this in, in this regard. Mm. So how how has traveling helped you better understand our own set of issues here? Uh, well, I was, when I was writing much of the book, I was living in Singapore. Uh, and so I think, and I think most people who travel as we do would agree that you get a better perspective in some ways on your own country when you're outside of it you understand because you're getting other people's views of it. Mm-hmm. And I always, I, the first time I really traveled extensively was when I was 15 uh, and went to Europe for the first time. And I was surprised how suddenly I became a stand-in for my government, even though I wasn't necessarily in support of the policies of my government. But as an American, I became the representative of my country, willingly or not. And so now I kind of seek that out. And when I'm in another country, I'm always interested in what other people think of America and what they think of not only the government, but the people and policies and so on. So it gives me, I think, a much larger view of America when I travel than when I'm here. Because when I'm here, I'm just, you know, in my own little echo chamber. But when I'm outside, I've got other people who are, you know, agreeing, disagreeing, whatever. And it, it really, really gives me a broader understanding of of my country. And, you know, as, as most people who've traveled know, 
people outside of America know so much more about America than typically Americans know about the rest of the world. Uh, and I, I've always thought that was a shame because, uh, I think the rest of the world has a lot to teach us about ourselves and about the way we act and behave, um, as a community of nations. Right. And this book just, uh, came out this year and it seemed like it was, uh, well timed <laughs> for, for the, uh, you know, upcoming election and kind of this specter of nationalism kind of creeping around the room. Could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the process of putting this together? I know you mentioned that many of these essays were written a long time ago. Yeah. A good question. You know, I, but I do want to say that my timing, I think, was ter- it seemed good at first, but now it was terrible, really, because because um, of COVID. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my the day I uh, the the my publication date was the day the CDC declared a pandemic, and I was able to give one in person reading and then nothing else, and everything got canceled. So <laughs> it's pretty bad. But you know, that's the least of. Uh, our worries. But, um, but in any case, yeah, putting together an essay collection, I, I, uh, I put a lot of thought into it. So the, the last essay in the book, which is, uh, about, uh, Canada day and the 4th of July, uh, and spending it with my daughters at this exclave of the U S called point Roberts, which is sort of dangles off a little, um, peninsula of Canada and should by all rights be Canadian, but isn't. Um, that was one of the first essays I wrote and it's the last in the book. And the, the thing about ordering, um, an essay collection is that, um, I try to look for essays that will kind of build upon one another you could call it an argument, but it's not exactly an argument. It's just, I like to create a tension between essays. So I do my prologue and then the first essay, you know, I try to make something that will, you know, whatever it is in this case, it was about, um, uh, Hong Kong. And I was there during the sort of beginning of the Hong Kong protests. And then what I try to do is find an essay that won't necessarily complement it, but will create some kind of tension with the other essay. Um, so if it's an essay about how, um, China is kind of being, uh, or has been, uh, really has hurt the rights and freedoms of the, uh, people of Hong Kong, then, um, I want to do something about, uh, a Western society also being, say, uh, uh, problematic for uh, a refugee. So I, I followed that with uh, this Afghan refugee in Australia who was really being threatened with deportation, you know, at any, any minute, any day. And then, you know, I also then find something to do with America and its policies. For instance, I interviewed a uh, an American refugee or an American exile who living in Cuba, who wanted by the FBI. Uh, and I, I interviewed her. So I'm always trying to find things that will cause that won't allow us to feel like, oh, I know what this where this 
collection is going. I know where this what's what this person's agenda is. I want I want to keep myself and the reader on his or her toes, and so I I look for essays that in a way have a dialogue with one another by their position in the book, and that's really a lot of fun ordering them. Mm-hmm. But I spend a lot of time thinking about that and really trying to build it so that in its own way, it becomes a bit of a page turner because if it's an essay collection does, isn't, uh, doesn't have the through line that a narrative does. And so you have to find other ways to build that kind of tension that we would normally have in a kind of what happens next book. Mm-hmm. Well, it might not have the, the same kind of narrative through line. It does have an, uh, something that say a novel, uh, doesn't, it has this kind of, bite-sized portions, right? These, these stories that are easily accessible and, you know, you can sit down and read one or two without feeling the sensation that you're going to give away your entire evening. Um, so it, it works in, in that level as well. Um, you know, there's this constant progression. I, I must say that <laughs> what surprised me about the story that you mentioned about the exile in Cuba is that you also took your students. <laughs> and so part of that story was interesting uh, from the perspective of a professor, uh, you know, getting the approval from your institution to speak to uh, <laughs> someone on the FBI's most wanted list, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't planned in that way, at least not the first time. But <laughs> when we were given the opportunity to meet with her, we, we, you know, because we were writers and there were journalists, we thought, yeah, of course, we're going to meet with her. And then we got, you know, we got in some hot water, but it it wasn't it wasn't that much of a problem. I mean, I uh, that's what writers do. I mean, writers listen to others, and you know, you. If, especially if you're doing something that's akin to journalism, you don't necessarily have to agree with everyone you're interviewing, you know. And and it was great to get her perspective. Her name's Nahanda Abadouin. Uh, she, yeah, was wanted on something like 22 counts by the FBI. Of course, her narrative, her story of why she's wanted and what she did or didn't do is obviously going to be very different from the FBI's. And, you know, there were cases, documented cases, where people in the Black Panthers were completely railroaded by the FBI and, and were spent years in jail because J. Edgar Hoover and others wanted them to rot in jail they consider themselves in, I mean, there were crimes, some of them committed, but not all of them. And some were basically community activists who were railroaded. And, you know, it's documented and they were given, the ones who were released were given um, uh, settlements, but their lives had been destroyed. So it's important to hear those stories. It's important to hear those stories uh, and for Americans to hear those stories you know, especially in a climate of Black Lives Matter and so on, um, it's important to hear stories that go against the national narrative that generally always wants to paint the home country as the good guys and always the good guys. And, you know, in order to actually grow as a nation, we always have to look at our past mistakes. And so, that's part of the travel writer's responsibility too, I think, is looking, listening to people 
who are telling you a different narrative than the one you you've heard. You can accept or reject it, but it's good to hear it. Right, and in an age where we are questioning the the monuments that are standing in our public squares and in our courthouses, you know, I think we you know, having this honest look at ourselves as individuals, but also ourselves as uh, an imagined nation. I mean, I think this is uh, something that um, we need to to spend more time doing and, you know, have a conver- an honest conversation about, um, at least in, in terms of public discourse. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're um, getting out of time here. Um, do you want to let us know where we can track you online. And I, I, I'm, I'm aware that you had previously uh, some some writing classes overseas scheduled, um, but I, I'm assuming those are canceled. Yeah. I, yeah, I have a, um, a group that I run with my friend Shusi uh, called Authors at Large. And the website is uh, aalauthors.com. And uh, we do workshops around the world, but recently we've been doing them online. And we also do manuscript consultations and things like that. Um, So there's that. And I also tend to teach uh, workshops around the world, um, you know, when I'm not, when we're not in a pandemic. Um, But for the time being, I'm, I'll be at uh, Long Island University. Um, I mean, for the, actually, hopefully for, uh, the rest of my academic career, (laughs) but in any case, um, uh, I'm also available. I'm, you know, you can find me on Twitter and all the usual suspects as it were. Cool. We'll put the links, uh, in the show notes so people can track you down there as well. So I appreciate you, uh, coming on the podcast to talk about your new book. Oh, well, I am so happy to to do this i really appreciate you uh reading my books and uh and sharing them with your listeners you can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash travel writing world. Thanks for your support.